The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on the ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. And uh, we're not the cafe today because Greg Greg's poorly, but uh, that's okay. We're just sitting here drinking coffee at home. Um, <laughs> exactly. And uh, uh, having our thing. So, look, a um, bit going on at the moment, James. Listen, um, what do you think about the super uh, objective that the government has uh, has pushed out there? Yeah, well, it's been a, a super interesting debate. Um, and again, I know I've said this before, but I've I, I got to give credit to Jim Chalmers. He, he, he's, he is prepared to sort of push these ideas out there and let them be kicked around. And I, I, I really sort of... I really admire him for it. You know, we have this thing in politics where we, I reckon things have become very black and white and Chalmers is able to sort of embrace the, the grey and the nuance, so good on him. But anyway, just as a reminder, the, the, the proposed definition is uh, of for the purpose of super is the objective of superannuation is to preserve savings to deliver income for a dignified retirement alongside government support in an equitable and sustainable way. Um, so I, I think there's a few important words there. Dignified is one. Um, yeah, what does that so, mean? Well, I, I think that means uh, that uh, you, you, you're going to be able to have a, a, a good retirement, perhaps with the b- b- between your super and some sort of government pension. Um, so you, you know you, you'll have a level of financial security and well-being. So okay, fair enough. Hard to argue against. The other word is preserve, which means that uh, they're, not, they're not going to allow anyone to take it out anymore. Yes, um, and uh, probably not. They won't be using it for nation building. Well, that, that's <laughs> that, that's an interesting point. I guess the other two interesting words are equitable and sustainable. Um, yeah, so it's all come down to it's all come down now to those words and uh, the idea that they're going to they're going to put a cap on the tax concessions. Yes. And um, the story this morning is that it was going to be three million dollars. So you can yeah. uh, once you once you go over three million in your super account, that's it for tax concessions. It'll get, either get taxed at marginal rate or thirty percent. It sounds like it'll be more like thirty percent, probably. Does that sound? Does three million sound reasonable to you, Alan? Oh yeah. I mean, look, my, my problem with the whole thing, particularly with the taxing. Uh, the tax changes and increasing the tax on super is—is is this the way that Chalmers and uh, Albanese really want to spend their political capital? Because it'll only raise a, a billion dollars or so, and they've got with the uh, with the demands on the budget from defence, Medicare, NDIS, aged care—you know, you name it—we're in tens of billions of dollars of pressure on mm. the budget. Mm. I mean, they're going to have to put up tax, or they they need to, in my view, put up taxes by a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, and this, it's quite clear already. You know, like you read the Australian this morning. You know, Peter Credlin's calling it a socialist tax grab. Um, 
you know, Angus Taylor and Peter Dutton are bloody going for it in a big way. So this is going to be a massive political um, argument and, you know, Albanese is going to be spending a lot of political capital just to get it through if he does, you know, even if they do. And um, I don't know, there's just not much in it. I mean, I, yeah. I agree with the idea that you've got to make it more t- equitable. The problem with super is it's a flat tax. It's, it's a regressive tax when the rest of our tax system is progressive so that people on higher incomes get taxed more. Um, so, you know, I mean, in principle, it's obviously the right thing to do, but crikey, it's going to be a, whack, it's going to be a massive um, uh, issue. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it in that way. Um, I mean, I, 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 on, on that nation-building point, it's interesting that Chalmers was so keen to sort of twist the debate in that direction. You go through the consultation paper and there's no real direct link between the purpose of super and nation building, but he's, you know, this comes back to his idea of a sort of different type of capitalism. Um, I, I think he's going to get short shrift from the super funds on this. Uh, their legislative obligations are so tightly um, focused on financial returns for members, I, I mean, unless the nation-building project can demonstrate strong financial returns, which is possible, um, I, I just don't see the super funds flocking to this like he thinks they sh- should. Yeah, well, it depends what this is. I mean, what is he talking about? What, what are we well, – I mean, we, are we saying that – He's going to say, we're going to build, I don't know, a big solar farm, government-owned solar farm, or, you know, introduce a national SEC, as Dan Andrews has done, um, and we want superannuation money in there, but, you know, you're going to have to accept 5% return, not 10 Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's exa- we've got an example, Alan. We've got this social housing. Um, oh, affordable, affordable housing. housing yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, accord. I mean, that, that's a perfect example. Uh, th- that's not an area where super funds have uh, typically gone because the returns aren't as good as they can get elsewhere. So if you're a big super fund, what do you do? Now, th- speaking to some of the super funds, you know, uh, th- they suggest that one of, the, wh- one of the wedges that the government's got is that the super funds are beneficiaries of big tax concessions or all their members are. And so could the government eventually put the asset on them to say, hey, you know, we're giving you very favourable treatment here, time to time to give back type of thing. But I don't know. Uh, again, your, your point about how to spend political cap- capital is very well made in this regard too, I think. I'm old enough to remember the 30-20 rule. Do you remember that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it was just that for, um, for insurance companies, which had a tax favourable tax uh, deal, um, the deal was that you got the favourable tax deal, but you had to put 30% of your money into government bonds, 20% of which had to be in federal government bonds, so 10% in state government bonds. So yeah. that was the deal. You had to invest in the government, uh, 30% of the money. Um, uh, that went. Th- that was abolished by Hawke and Keating uh, as, part of the, um, as part of the financial system deregulations. But, uh, I mean... I suppose you could reintroduce something like that, I guess. That, that, that'd be an option. That'd be an option. I, I, I think, though, um, and I think the Superfund guys are pretty confident of this too, that the Superfund systems run so well and the returns at the moment are good. If there's some sort of scandal or 
a run of really awful returns, that probably weakens them. But um, at the moment, uh, it ain't broke, so it's hard to argue you're going to fix it. Well, that's right, but the government's still got to try and get some money into affordable housing, and they, uh, as we've discussed with the budget, they haven't got the money. Yeah, but Alan, do, do you? What do you think about this idea that we've got this giant pool of super? You know, let, let let's bring it to bear on pet projects or, or yeah. important projects, but but you know, it, it will involve the government picking of the day, picking what they want to what what they want to do. I mean, is, is that what individuals? want to do with their retirement savings? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I reckon the government they can do what they like as long as they keep their hands off my money. <laughs> yes. It's my super. Come on. Exactly. Off. Exactly. Yes. Well, <laughs> well I mean, I've got an SMSF, you know, so I don't know. So any nation building, what that, that's just the money in big super funds. What are they going to do? Sort of um, co-opt money from the SMSFs as well. I mean, I don't know. That's a, yeah. I, don't, I just think the whole thing's rubbish. It's not going to happen. I mean, and they're clearly going to put a cap on super of the tax concessions, probably three three million. Um, a lot of the debate has been about five million. Um, the Grattan Institute recommended two million. Uh, David Knox at Mercer said three point four million. Um, <laughs> it'll probably be three, maybe. Um, It'll, you know, there'll be. But Dutton's already campaigning on uh, the attack on super at the Aston by-election, um, you know, and uh, the Australian and News Limited are going to go mad about it. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know. It's going to be. Uh, I, I just think, what? What's the point? Anyway. Um, well, let's talk okay. about let's talk about inflation and the C the RBA because they put out the minutes what this week didn't they? Um, they did. Yes, and uh, uh, they didn't even consider having no no rate hike as they did in December. No. Looks like they uh, they did consider a fifty point uh, fifty basis point hike, zero point five percent. In the end, they decided not to, and I guess the wage data yesterday maybe uh, gave them a bit of justification for that. It was a little bit weaker than the market expected, so. Um, but I don't know. I think it's going to be a long fight against inflation, and uh, um, we're seeing on on both sides of the Pacific that, and including in Europe. I mean, there were some massive numbers out of Germany yesterday. Inflation running at up around nine percent in parts of Germany. Uh, it's not. <laughs> it's not falling quickly. No, but they've got they've got an energy crisis. I mean, crikey! <laughs> yeah. You know, oh well. Of course, not- they've got inflation running high. Well, I mean, in America, it's six and a half percent, and it's uh, what over seven here. So, I know, but it's coming down. Yep, I reckon they yep. should cool it. What are they? I mean, really? Anyway, I mean, we got a lot of questions. We should probably, in our discussion about inflation, we probably should just uh, refer to some of the questions. Yeah, for sure. Good idea. Uh, what do we got? Alice says uh, raising interest rates is supposed to reduce consumption by make t- taking money from mortgage holders, but if higher interest rates give money back to depositors, uh, is there much net effect? Uh, if there's a net difference, where does that money go? Um, yeah, well, the, the thing, Alice, is that the whole basis of monetary policy is that, <clears throat> is that there's more borrowers than savers. So it, the net effect on the economy is to depress the economy because it has 
you know, obviously, <clears throat> obviously, higher interest rates benefit savers and cost uh, cost borrowers. Yes. Um, but the idea is that the cost is greater than the benefit, and that's so uh, the net, net effect on the economy is depressive. Isn't that yes, right? Yes, savers aren't spenders. That's it. So the the borrowers tend to cut back more than the savers more than the savers spend. But you're right, Alice. Then that it's it's a sort of um, a net effect rather than an absolute. Yes. Um, yeah. So. Uh, you Alice to... also has uh, there's a number of questions here uh, that that addresses this idea that was raised in a. Um, ABC article last week uh, about Keynes's idea of a compulsory saving scheme to control inflation, where you, 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 I think the the suggestion was that people would be forced to save for a period. Um, again, that takes the, that that means they're not consuming and then buying goods and pushing up prices, and then that money is returned to them sort of after the inflation danger has passed. Uh, so. There's yeah, several there's questions asking us what we think about that. Um, yeah, and also, also someone else is um, Rowan is suggesting we could change the GST yeah. rather than rather than change interest rates. So there's a few other there's a few ideas of you know what else can we do apart from move interest rates up and down. Um, well, compulsory savings we've got super, which is compulsory savings. So I mean, I suppose theoretically you could change the the superannuation percentage. Um, you know, to deal with inflation, but none of these things is going to happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah. really, because um, uh, it's too political. I mean, you know, whack up the uh, either whack up GST or increase the superannuation deduction. Um, sure, that would depress the economy in the short term, but but the cost of the political cost would be enormous. So yes. they won't do it. Yes. I mean, some of these mechanisms could work. I, I think the the sort of MMM, you, you might correct me on this, Alan, but the MMT, modern monetary theory uh, solution is to raise taxes to control inflation, which would have a similar effect of um, taking money out of the system. Uh, I guess it's sort of a forced savings thing or an increase in the GST. Um, yeah. But again, to your point, Alan, you know, we're going to have a – a huge fight over what's a pretty reasonable cap on super balances. Imagine the fight we'd have on uh, forced savings, um, a forced savings scheme. It's just, uh, it's it's impractical. I would have thought. And, yeah, and, which is, and, and it's maybe it's not the way you'd want to go either. Well, look, it's it's the reason the politicians love having an independent reserve bank because they can just say, "Look, the independent, the reserve bank's independent. It's not our fault." And they can just wash their hands of it, like um, Mr. Pontius Pilate did. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, well, uh, B- Bill says loves the podcast and financially rewarded from it because he took the option of a fixed rate mortgage way back in the day. That's very good work there. Alan seems to have reined in his criticism with Lowe with the point that his advice is only to influence markets now and should not be seen as guarantees. Uh, that ends up as gobbledygook. What are we supposed to think? Total nonsense. He said dates, and he's the head of our of the RBA. Who can we trust? What do you reckon? What do you reckon, Alan? I know, I know you had the dreaded uh, bug last week, but did you catch any of Lowe in front of uh, his various the, the Senate and then the the Parliament? Well, I didn't watch it. I read a lot of the um, the transcripts, and I understand what he's on about. Um, 
Yeah, well, look, uh, I'm not uh, – yeah, look, I'm, I'm critical of Lowe because I, he, he made a mistake. Um, he didn't understand what he was – well, the impact of what he was saying. But I am I, – I am I have said and I am saying that, you know, that what Lowe say, says should never be taken as a – as a, an actual prediction or, a, you know, a forecast, mm. it's always designed to influence behaviour at the time and he's he's open about that. Um, so, um, you know, now, it's, I mean, I find it really interesting that that uh, everyone's kind of running around saying, oh, you know, the, the, the uh, Philip Lowe says there's going to be two more rate hikes. Well, he, <laughs> he's just trying to rein in behaviour now. He's trying to get people to cut back their spending now in anticipation of potential rate hikes in order that he doesn't have to do it. Yeah. I mean, his hope would be that if people kind of act as if he's going to put up interest rates two more times, he won't have to. <laughs> yes. So, yes. you know, it isn't an actual prediction. So it's kind of – I find it amazing that the all the economists – you know, adjust their predictions and even Gareth Ayre at CBA and um, Shane Oliver have, have kind of gone from no more rate hikes to two more. Um, yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, maybe they're right. Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's definitely more art than science. I mean, uh, I think my sort of lasting impression uh, from the low appearances last week is he's a bit like the – the CEO or even the footy coach where he's saying all the right things but for one reason or another, people have stopped listening. And it, it, I think there's, I mean, if there was any doubt before, and there probably wasn't, there's going to have to be a change of voice when his contract is out in, in September. Um, I don't think there's, there's no doubt he, he won't be, that, that contract won't be renewed. And, yeah, I, I, I just... I think he's burned a lot of capital with the with the mistake around um, predicting no rate rises until twenty twenty four. And yes, before you write in and say that's not actually what he said, he admits that that was the intent of what he said. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I, I just think people have stopped listening, and um, you, you know you do make a good point, Alan. How much should you listen to him? But I also think uh, Bill also makes a, a good point. We do want someone with as much credibility as possible, um, and and Phil's has taken a, a battering, unfortunately. Yeah, that's right. I think you're absolutely right. The, it's essential that the the uh, Reserve Bank Governor has credibility, otherwise, you know, they're lost. Yeah. Um, yep. Absolutely. Andrew says, it's been a while since Alan has observed Milton Friedman's assertion is wrong, that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Is Alan changing his mind and that Milton may be right, given inflation is sticking around despite supply issues resolving? If Alan is sticking to his guns, what proportion of the current inflation problem does he think is due to war and pestilence and what proportion due to a delayed reaction to easy money? Yeah, Alan. (laughs) Well... I think uh, Milton Friedman's aphorism uh, was disproved in 1973 when inflation skyrocketed because of the oil shock after the Yom Kippur War. I mean, you know, that was caused by oil prices going up. And then again in 1979 with the um, the second oil shock and the Iranian Revolution. I mean, 
uh, it is the case that they then had to crunch demand in order to get inflation out of the system. And I'm not saying that um, uh, inflation never has anything to do never never has anything to do with easy money. Um, uh, of course, it does. But I'm just saying that that's not all it's about. And in fact, this inflation is mainly to do with the uh, Ukraine war and supply problems. Uh, but also, it is also due to um, uh, fiscal stimulus in the pandemic. So, and also, to, and also to do with um, money printing by the um, central banks. But, but just bear in mind that the central banks have been printing money since two thousand and nine, or two thousand and eight, in fact. Um, you know, so there's been easy money for <clears throat> I don't know thirteen years, and yeah. Yeah. and for much of that time. Inflation was under two percent, and the reserve, and they were printing money in order to get inflation up, but they couldn't. It was just impossible, and so they were just chasing their tails, trying to get inflation up with printing money, and it wasn't working until finally um, the governments came to the party and started issuing their own money, um, borrowed, and then uh, Vladimir Putin helped out by invading Ukraine. Yeah, and the pandemic helped down by helped out by wrecking supply chains around the world. It, it really is. This is one out of the box, and, and that's why I think that's why we're seeing so much uncertainty. It's just there's things happening in tandem at the moment that we haven't seen. You know, we don't often see rates rising while employment staying this strong. So there's 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 stuff happening here that. You know, we we just the combinations are, are different to what we've seen before. Now that doesn't mean that the, you know, it's necessarily going to work out any differently. But listening to reporting season, there's just so much uncertainty. You know, CEOs are constantly being asked what's going to happen in the next six months, what's going to happen in the next twelve months. To be frank, they don't have any idea. There's so much. There's so much sort of to play for at the moment. Um, so many different scenarios. It's quite an amazing time. Yeah, that's right. We probably should uh, get on to some of the other questions before, yeah, sure. we, before we close. Uh, Samantha's got a good one. I'm, sw- I want, I'm wanting to switch from an SMSF to an industry super fund. I'm concerned that the super funds will be required to externally revalue their unlisted assets and that these assessments would result in lower in a lower valuation than they currently have. Ideally, I'd like to transfer after the external asset valuation because her entry price would be lower. Yet I wonder if this process will continue to be put off and I'll be waiting indefinitely for this to happen. What are your thoughts? Great question. Well, I think I think the heat is coming on this issue uh, and APRA is trying to force the super funds to look really hard at these unlisted asset valuations. That is happening as we speak um, and, and you'll see some resolution on that i would have thought this year well, what resolution well i mean the the industry the super fund returns you saw for the 2022 financial year they only include the unlisted asset valuations up to about march so that even those you know those numbers that everyone reports on at the end of the financial year they've got this inbuilt lag in them they're, they're actually not accurate so that those those unlisted valuation uh, reassessments will be coming through over the next six months. You know, uh, uh, they will have started from this year and we'll see them popping up 
in quarterly results over the next little while. Yeah, and it's probably worth bearing in mind that um, a big part of the, the influence on uh, valuation of these assets is the long-term bond rate. Mm. Um, the higher it goes, uh, the lower the valuation. So um, long-term bond rates t- uh, are, are rising and that's having a depressing effect on the, um, on the valuation of these assets no matter what they're doing. Um, but so there's this tension going on between long-term bond rates going up and also uh, depressing the value of them while at the same time um, their values tend to be going up because, you know, they're making more money. Yeah, yeah. But look, I, I, I guess for Samantha, you know, I think it's a hard thing to time as well. If, if There's got to be other reasons she wants to make that switch, whether she's, you know, had enough of the of running her SMSF or whatever it is. So, you know, I, I, I'd be – it's hard enough to time a share market, let alone trying to time this. So I'd, I'd think about what your higher order priorities are here. Yeah. Gavin's got a question about ETFs, basically saying that some, some ETFs have got other ETFs in them and does that mean that there's two levels of fees? And the answer, Gavin, is yes. Yes. Um, if you've got something that's charging a fee to run an SMS, uh, an ETF that's got a fee, then you're going to pay two levels of fees. You've got to just keep, keep an eye on making sure that uh, uh, they don't add up to too much. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um Liam's uh, Tom's got a, a good question. Sorry, CBA recently announced a share buyback of roughly two billion, noting the share price is not far off all-time highs. Is this a responsible way to return value to shareholders? What am I missing here? I'll be very interested in your answer to this, James. Um, I think it's a reasonable point from Tom. Yeah. Well, uh, so you you reckon it's not so much a, it's not a very responsible way to return value to shareholders? Oh, I, I I I think share buybacks are generally good and and there are sort of tax reasons why a company prefers them the question though is what else could you do with that two billion dollars so if you have something to invest it in all good and well if you have an acquisition you want to make all good and well if you can't find any of those things the best thing to do is to put it back into the hands of uh, investors I, i imagine cba doesn't have enough franking credits for that to be um, done via a dividend. So the next best option, even with the share price at all-time highs, is probably a buyback. But Tom raises, does raise a good point about uh, doing that when the share price is not far off all-time highs. Yes. And I, mean, I think, I mean, perhaps cynically, but I reckon that one of the reasons that companies like share buybacks is because um, uh, uh, executive bonuses tend to be tied to the share price and um, paying it back as a dividend uh, is not as good for the share price, perhaps, as buying them, buying the shares back. Oh, that's very cynical. But you're probably right. <laughs> yes. What is Liam saying? Can a regular Liam says, can a regulated mandatory fixed ten percent interest rate to all home loans and a guaranteed eight percent to pension and savings accounts scheme be achievable to gradually make house prices affordable? And what would be the necessary mechanisms for the required parties to entertain and make the scheme? Would oh, I don't know what he's talking about. Do you know, understand what he's on about? Uh, no, I don't quite get that. Sorry, Liam. Uh, Sean's it. got a good question. If you see a director, if you see a company issue statement that says a company director is selling down some of their own shares, would this be an instant cause for concern or at least pique your curiosity? 
Or would your curiosity be directly linked to just how much of their own shares they're selling down? This is a great question. What do you reckon, Alan? I've got strong feelings on this. Um, uh, <laughs> well, tell me what your strong feelings are. Well, uh, I, I just, uh, I think we jump on uh, director and insider selling as if it's some, you know, crime against humanity. Yes, it should pique your interest and you should have a look. But I find it hilarious that fund managers who spend all their day preaching diversification, they hate it when the owner of one of their companies decides, oh, I wouldn't mind diversifying my interests a little bit by selling down a few shares. That, that they Apparently, that's a sort of crime for the fund managers. It's, it's one of the great double standards in the market. Yes, you should. It should pique your curiosity. But if someone's selling down, you know, ten percent of their holdings because they've got a tax bill or because they want to diversify their money a bit, take something off the table. I don't think that's a crime. That they they should be transparent about it and explain it. But geez, we've I've seen some overreactions in my time to this this matter. Yep, fair enough. <laughs> We're running out of time. Catch us to one or two more. I've, Gareth says, I was looking at buying a RAV4 hybrid the other day and was shocked to find that the wait list is actually getting longer and is now blown out to three years. And we used to make hybrid Toyotas in this country, but we seem to have been telling ourselves for the past 30 years that manufacturing is poor is for poor countries and the future is the services sector. Um, uh, are we Were we too quick to give up the car industry in Australia and the manufacturing in general? And the answer is, oh, absolutely, definitely. What a disaster giving up the car industry was. Crikey. Mm. I mean, that should be hung around Tony Abbott's neck like an albatross, in my opinion. What a shocker that yeah, was. Yeah. Crikey. Uh, to, to be fair, um, uh, I think Toyota has uh, not been great on this whole hybrid EV shift. Um, I don't think they've done a great job on that and, and, and they've sort of admitted that they're a bit behind the eight ball. So there's probably other... Uh, I'm not sure about hybrid options, but there's lots of other EV options that Gareth could probably uh, get behind the wheel of. Um, I think there are some Toyota-specific issues at play. Mm. Final question: Omar says, "Just wondering if you've read Currency Wars by James Rickards. What do you think about? What do you think of the author's analysis of the world's financial system? Are we in a currency war? And what are your predictions? Do you think we'll go back to gold? Well, I actually had coffee with Jim Rickards in." in New York around the time he published this book. And uh, uh, he's an interesting guy. Um, and but, but the thing is, in the past 10 years, he's uh, been disappearing, increasingly disappearing into conspiracy theories. And um, I'm lucky he's always kind of intended to go there. Um, the idea with currency wars is that um, uh, the China in particular is trying to undermine the US dollar. Uh, which is absolutely true. I don't think it's it's even being hidden. And so uh, th- there is a currency war kind of, but really um, it's not getting anywhere and it isn't really going to lead to anything because no one is seriously challenging the, the US dollar's primacy as the world's reserve currency, not at this stage anyway. Um, so, yeah. just be, But just look, just because... You're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after out to get you. So, <laughs> well put, well put, Alan. <laughs> um, very good. Well, uh, great to talk to you again, James. Thanks very much. Oh, pleasure, Alan. Thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of the Money Cafe. Stephen and Bain will be back next week, and hopefully, we'll be back in the 
in the cafe. So send in your question and we'll answer it together on next week's episode by emailing themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until then, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report. And I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist for the AFR. See you next week.